welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, my name is Omar Almograbi, a first-year cardiac fellow at the University of Kansas Medical Center. I have the pleasure of, of introducing Dr. Emmanuel Dayon, CT surgeon and program director at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Thank you for agreeing to tackle this controversial topic today. There are some interesting discussions going on about how patients and health systems are demanding more specialized care, but competing with an impending CT surgeon uh, shortage that may necessitate more generalized practice just to fulfill patient demand. As some of the latest reports indicate, there are about 4,000 cardiac surgeons in the U.S., meaning approximately one cardiac surgeon for every 72,000 patients. By 2030, we expect to have around 3,000 CT surgeons. In addition, it's predicted that the caseload for each uh, cardiothoracic surgeon would increase by 121%. We know from the STS database that about 29% of the current CT surgeons are aged 60 years or over, and with the increase in the baby boomers population, the need for more cardiothoracic surgeon is imperative. So Dr. Dayon, how did we get to this point? So this is nothing new, Uh, and uh, I'm glad to comment on this. I think it's a topic of extreme importance that's going to get even more uh, in more dire as the years go by, and I don't want to be uh, laying crepe, but uh, this is going to become a big problem. Um, For the last 10 to 12 years, we've had a shortage of resident applicants, and that was driven by some uh, market dynamics that basically forced surgeons to continue working after the stock market uh, had uh, some significant dips. And so what ended up happening is many surgeons who were planning to retire didn't retire, and that uh, translated into um, fewer jobs available for residents who were graduating, which is about when I graduated, and, uh, and that was a long time ago. And, and as we all know, it takes uh, not quite a decade, but it takes a long time to train a cardiothoracic surgeon from the time that they finish medical school. And so what ended up happening is that uh, with fewer trainees um, and I'm going to say fewer quality applicants, programs were even more reluctant to uh, open their doors uh, to residents who they didn't feel they could train and the net result is that there were fewer graduating residents that could actually operate and do the job uh, as it is defined by the American Board of Thoracic Surgery. So that's one facet of it the decrease in their number of graduating residents is nothing that we're going to fix in the short term. This is going to take probably somewhere between five and ten years um, until we can fix this problem. We've begun already and the good news is the last three years we've seen an increase in the number of applicants to CT surgery residency programs. So we're all ecstatic about that but this is not a quick fix. The second uh, point of, uh, of this is that the population is aging and uh, the baby boomer slice of our population is reaching the age now where typically most people need cardiac surgery, uh, whether it's coronary surgery or valvular, 
uh, heart surgery. And uh, if uh, you project out in the near future, uh, we're not yet, uh, we're really just starting to see the baby boomers uh, come into that age group. But in five or six years, um, that'll be uh, at the top of the bell curve. And this is really probably gonna be where we're gonna feel the greatest impact uh, of, of shortage. So those two things alone really, um, you know, they were enough to put a lot of stress on the system, but there's, there's a third aspect of this, which, which is gonna maybe create kind of a perfect storm situation. All the surgeons that were supposed to retire back a few years ago that didn't uh, are now gonna be looking to retire. And as you said already, there's a large chunk of us who are over the age of 60 uh, and, um, you know, for the most part, I think the majority of surgeons tend to retire between age 65 and 70. Uh, and so retiring surgeons, the decrease in the number of residents available that are graduating, and the increase in demand by the baby boomer population is going to make it pretty ugly. Um, so that's how we got to this point. Um, and uh, I, again, I don't know of a quick solution. Thank you. Uh, so with the impending CT surgeon shortage, uh, there are several studies that have come out recently uh, showing that uh, super specialized surgeons tend to have better outcomes. So this brings me to the next question, which is, is it true that the uh, generalist cardiac surgeon era is ending? So that's a good question. Um, I'm going to go back just a little bit to address another thing that uh, is a misconception. There is no cap for training residents uh, for cardiothoracic surgery. The only requirement that is set by the review committee of the uh, ACGME is that we have enough cases to train residents and that we do a good job training residents. There's no such thing as a cap. If any program feels that they can train a resident and they have the substrate to do so, they will be approved by the review committee. So there's no cap for that. I think a lot of people feel that this is something that we limit and, uh, and our specialty does not limit that. Um, to answer your question, um, you know, is it true that somebody who does a super, super fellowship does a better job and has better outcomes? Well, I don't know. I think it's very dependent on the person. Um, I do not think the generalist cardiac surgeon era is ending. Uh, matter of fact, on the contrary, that's going to be probably where there's the greatest need um, as this shortage is coming on. Um, and, and I think two things will happen. Uh, the shortage will get worse uh, and or it will force consolidation of services where, you know, a city that's the size of about a million residents maybe only has two open heart surgery programs instead of ten. Um, so uh, to, to address the super specialization, um, I think that in academic medical centers, it's, it's a fairly natural course because of the availability of uh, doing clinical studies and also the resources of a larger institution uh, make it more conducive to, to uh, doing clinical studies. And that, in part, is what drives innovation, and that, in part, is what attracts super specialization, such as 
transcatheter therapy, for example. Uh, but that's not where the greatest need is going to be. The greatest need is going to be in the general population. Uh, it's going to be for bread and butter cardiac surgery, and, and everybody should be able to do that, not just the surgeons who are super specialized. So, uh, so that's really the answer. I think that um, the generalist cardiac surgeon or somebody who can do bread and butter cardiac surgery and thoracic surgery uh, is going to be really the, the focus of, uh, of most institutions in terms of what they're searching for. Um, I think that there is no way that super specialized, specialized surgeons can care for all the patients out there uh, 365 days a year and 24 hours a day. Thank you. So as a program director at the University of Kansas, uh, what are the goals of training programs for the fellows and trainees? So this is a very uh, personal goal for me, uh, and I think it may be somewhat different for every program, although the review committee has very strict guidelines on what they want us to accomplish. Uh, my goal as a program director and the reason that we have our training program is because we want to train surgeons. There's no other reason for it. There's definitely some give and take in terms of service activities versus learning activities, but the emphasis is on learning. Uh, this is different than in years past uh, when the service aspect of residency was really dominant. The goal of the program is to uh, produce a finished product. In other words, I, uh, I am intent on training people and when they're finished training that they can begin to work and that the work that they will do will be quality work. In other words, um, you know, really the last thing I want to hear from somebody who hires one of our graduates is, oh my gosh, this person can't operate because that's what we're supposed to do, right? Um, so, so that's my goal is to produce a finished surgeon that, uh, somebody who can do cardiac and thoracic surgery in a safe manner independently. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, this doesn't just, um, in my mind, uh, become limited to skills in the operating room. This is all encompassing. Um, there's many attributes that we, uh, focus on developing, including social attributes and, uh, and I think it's just sort of the whole package. Um, so that's the goal of the program. One thing that everybody knows uh, after having gone through this is after the program is finished, it still takes three to five years to learn uh, to sort of cut your teeth, for example, and be comfortable in your shoes in doing your job. And so we're not ever done learning as residents when we, you know, the day that we finish the training program. That learning continues for some time. Thank you. I came across a study from 2015 that surveyed fellows in the two-year versus three-year fellowship programs. Respondents from three-year programs felt more prepared and did better on their written thoracic surgery exam, and where fellows enrolled in two-year programs had difficulty with meeting the required number of cases. So this brings me to the question of, do you think fellows feel obligated to pursue a super fellowship more so if, um, if they train in a two-year program? I don't. Um, I think this is very person dependent. Uh, if you have somebody who's very well organized and focused, they can 
complete a two-year training program and be ready to operate. This is going to obviously take a lot more focus and a lot more time in terms of per day or per week. I think a three-year fellowship really affords the residents some time to mature and think about these complex problems that we are, uh, you know, that were dealt nowadays, which was not the case 10 or 20 years ago. Um, I think the other facet of this is if you are a resident who's completing a two-year program and you're not willing to put in the work or if the environment is not right to finish in two years, it absolutely will drive you to do a third year because either two things will happen, your program director will not sign off on you or you won't feel comfortable. And, and either path is, to me, not good. I think the, the right path is, whether it's two or three years, is to organize it so that when the resident's finished, they're ready. The concept of super specialization may sound appealing to young fellows, but should this concept be driven by a career path a fellow intends on pursuing? Um, maybe. Um, you know what, it sounds really cool when you finished your CT residency and you've done an aortic uh, super fellowship and you can go out and, uh, and really market yourself as an aortic surgeon. Are you really an aortic surgeon when you're done? Well, no. Uh, it takes years to develop these skills. Um, you know, it would be kind of akin to, uh, well, you get all the training that you can to uh, become president of the United States, but, but really, you don't really know what the job is like and what it takes to do it until you actually do it. And this is the same thing. So th there's that that maturity time that's necessary to to really kind of I guess proclaim yourself as an aortic surgeon if you've done an aortic super fellowship. So the one place so I think this is not significantly or not particularly helpful for somebody who's going to pursue uh, a private practice setting. Um, I might comment on that a little bit. I think if you are contemplating joining a private practice, I can tell you that you will do what the practice does. So if they do aortic surgery, you'll do some aortic surgery. If they do uh, peripheral vascular surgery, you might do that. Because that's why they're hiring you, because they want you to work. On the other hand, if you choose an academic setting, I think it could be helpful to do a super fellowship. Uh, and, and in that case, you know, you may have less uh, clinical time and maybe more research time. Things are structured so differently in the academic world uh, that you know this may afford you a little bit more time to develop as a super specialized person. But, but I think either way, it's so important to be able to do bread and butter surgery that that shouldn't be ignored. Um, you know, the, the one other facet of this is there are some super fellowships that are basically required to do the work. So for example, if you want to be a mechanical assist surgeon, um, you know, I don't think anybody would take you if you didn't have some specialized training, whether it's six months or a year of it, uh, since it's not a separate board. And then the other one is, which is an even better example is pediatric cardiac surgery, which is now a separate uh, certification. Uh, there's no way you can actually do pediatric cardiac surgery and be certified uh, without completing a super fellowship in it. So 
I think a lot of it depends on what you choose as a career and what your intent is. Um, again, I think it's difficult to make a super fellowship pay off if you're going to do private practice. Uh, and, and certainly if you do a super fellowship and your intent is to do only that, I think you're fooling yourself a little bit that somebody's just going to hire you to do this one thing. So, uh, and I think that's just reality. Um, don't really have any other comments about that uh, other than I think the main goal and what everybody should have in mind for a goal when they're training is when they're finished, they should be able to do their job. That's, that's our, our job as program directors and teachers to be able to, um, to really finish with somebody who, you know, who is relatively comfortable operating by themselves, but knowing that, you know, maybe they have, um, constant backup from, from their colleagues that are more senior. Great. Well, I have no further questions for you, Dr. Dion. I, I really do appreciate uh, your uh, thoughts and time. And this will conclude the TSRA uh, podcast series. Thank you very much. Great. You're welcome. My pleasure.